Thanks, Sarah. So this story is really the third in a series of three stories in Luke chapter 15. The first one is the story of the lost coin, or the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then the story of what's come to be known as the prodigal son. Prodigal means lavish. So it's named after this son because of his wasteful, lavish, extravagant lifestyle. I have to confess that I probably relate a little bit more to the elder brother in this story. Doesn't get nearly as much press. Story comes at the end. Didn't even hear it. Often overlooked. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably because responsibility is in my top ten strengths. Truth is, it's in my top five strengths. Okay, it's actually my number one strength. But the problem is that there are no wonderful stories about Mr. Responsibility. All of the great stories tend to center around, you know, the prodigal. The one who went off. Prodigal this, prodigal this, blah, 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 blah. All these great stories that revolve around this life's journey and then this return. That's not my story. I'm the one who stays in the fields working. I'm responsible. I keep my nose to the grindstone. I keep working at it. I hold the fort down. I'm the one who uh, you can trust with what needs to be done. I don't know who you relate to more, but that's typically where I fall. But in this particular story, we are confronted with two brothers, the one who's the older brother, and then we've got the younger brother. Probably ought to just go to the benediction now. Um, so the younger brother. Story is very different than the older brother. The younger brother goes to the father, and you heard parts of it. Basically, the younger brother goes to the father and says, I can't stand it here anymore. And to be honest, I can't wait until you die to leave. That sounds harsh, that sounds arrogant, but in that culture, at that time, the kind of statement to say, I'd like my inheritance now, was unheard of. It was abrasive, it was obnoxious, arrogant to say the least. And not only was this a request to have his portion of the inheritance, but if any portion were ever given while the father was still alive, there is, for that culture, the opportunity for the father to continue to benefit from those possessions that he was passing on. Not only is the younger brother saying, I want my inheritance now, but I want to take it with me. I want to leave. 
with what I have coming to me. It is unbelievable. It is, in many ways, like saying, I wish you were dead. Because I can't take this anymore. The sad piece of all of this is that the younger brother so misunderstands the character and nature of the father. The older brother. The older brother stays at home, works in the field, but it seems from the older brother's perspective that his outlook is very much the outlook of the younger brother in that we find the older brother thinking about the far country frequently, it would appear. His statement at the end of this chapter kind of betrays his heart. He makes the comment to his father who comes out to look for him, I can't believe it, you're throwing this party for this son of yours who has squandered away all of his wealth with prostitutes and riotous living. There's nothing in the storyline that says that the younger brother has spent any time with prostitutes or that was any part of what he was doing. It makes you wonder, is there a chance that the older brother, while outwardly being incredibly responsible, being incredibly present, taking care of all of the things that need to be done now, is actually in his heart frequenting the far country himself? Allowing in his head the thoughts to go, wow, I wonder what it's like to do that. I'm stuck here. Somebody has to take care of this. Who's going to do it if I don't? The older brother filling out the to-do lists, making sure all things are taken care of, spinning the plates and making sure they all keep going. The older brother has this potential to live in a state of resentment. Resentment that he hasn't gotten the chance to do that. Resentment that leads to criticism. Resentment that leads to complaining. And resentment and joy never coexist. Resentment always robs a person of the joy that might be there. The opportunity to enjoy the moment, to be present in what's going on now, because there's the complaint that keeps going. But for the younger brother, it's simply rebellion. Or at least that's what we think. The truth as I see this, as I read this, it feels to me like the younger brother, though it has all of this external character of rebellion, it just looks to me like the younger brother is trying to figure out who he is. What's his identity? It's maybe in some ways far less about rebellion and far more about trying to find how he can be uniquely himself, to find success with who he is, to not, uh, to not be forced into the comparisons with his older brother. 
Dad, I can't be him. Dad, I can't live up to what he's done. I can't be what I think you want me to be. I don't fit that. That's not who I am. That's not, that's not what draws me. Those aren't the passions inside of me. Again, it doesn't seem like the fathers asked that of him, but probably far more what he thinks everyone else expects of him. He pushes away, goes to the far country to try and find his own success, his own future, his own identity. The older brother lives in this world of comparisons. You know the world. It's, it's a world of grades. I'm either an A, B, C, D, or F. And if I don't reach what I think or maybe what I think others think I ought to reach, it might as well be an F. I'm a failure. If I get past the schooling ranking of things, I step into a workplace where I have performance evaluations, where I'm judged on a scale of 1 to 10. There seems to be a point system with everything. Am I getting published? Am I getting the press? Am I finding myself winning in this comparison game? That's the elder brother's journey. And you don't have to be an elder brother to feel that. You don't have to be the oldest in the family to have been trapped by that kind of a culture. And it translates into my spiritual journey. I am certain that God has a grading system. And I have to earn enough points to pass God's system. I can't even conceive of a grace or a love that doesn't have some level of expectation of grading to it. It just doesn't make sense. I, I can't wrap my logical head around it, my spiritual head around it, my emotional heart around it. And so I'm always comparing. And the tragedy about that is the only way I know how to win is if enough people lose. For me to be ahead means that you need to be behind. There are always winners and there are always losers and the comparison game always takes me in that direction because it's the only way I know how to gauge my worth. My identity is wrapped up in that comparison. Every bit as difficult is living in a culture that's driven by economic consumerism. So if I've gone to the far country to find my identity, very often it's built on the kinds of things that lead me into a sense of low self-worth, a lack of identity sometimes translates into a poor identity. And then, then I'm left in this place where I'm subject to what everyone else says will give me meaning and value. So everyone tells me, this will make you happy, this will make you successful. This will make you liked. Visit this place, vacation here, purchase this, wear this, and you'll find that you'll belong. 
It never lives up to the hype. Sometimes the striving is exciting. (laughs) Sometimes the hope keeps me going for a while. But inevitably what happens is I realize, one, that it's never quite as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. Number two, it no longer is the thing and the next thing is there that I have to consume or purchase or do or accomplish to keep that feeling going. And three, eventually when my needs run out, I'm discarded by all of those who have built the economy on my needs and they go on to the next person. And the identity that I had wrapped up has this vicious cycle because I've lost and I've lost. I'm a loser and everything I feared is now coming true and it falls apart in front of me. My goal I don't know that it was so much rebellion. I really wanted to prove myself. If I could kind of have a jump start, if I could invest the right way, if I could get the right job, if I could show some level of success, maybe then Dad would be proud of me. Maybe then I could come back and There'd be a smile on his face, and and I would prove that I could make something of myself. Never quite worked out that way. It fell apart. I can blame it on a lot of things. I can blame it on the economy. I can blame it on somebody else. I can blame it on poor references. I can... Blame it on the fact that a famine came and uh, everybody else kind of fell apart as well. But I ended up so low, I had no place to look but up. As the older brother, I felt like I had no place to look at all. I mean, I have my job, I'm working in the fields, I'm taking care of things, but somehow obedience has become a burden. Service has somehow turned into slavery. The good boy stuff somehow now feels like chains that keep my hands cuffed behind my back and keep me from running and jumping and doing anything else. (laughs) It's interesting. The father comes out to me in the field, having thrown a big party for the younger brother, my brother, I hear the music. I ask a servant, a hired hand, what is it that's going on? And the response is, your brother who is lost has been found. And they're throwing a big party for him in the house. 
actually, the house is my house. I mean, that's part of my inheritance. That's part of what I get. And yet I can't even bring myself to go into the house, to join in the festivities. I am so ticked. I'm ticked at a God that seems so unjust. How can you pour out your love on this brother who just did all of this in your face? Yeah, yeah, I know it was in my face as well. And maybe that's the issue. But it was in your face. What kind of justice is that? And both the younger brother and the older brother have created for themselves a slavery. As the older brother, I say, I can't go in there. And I look at all of those who are having such a good time. My response to my father is this. I've slaved for you all these years. You've never thrown me a party. Slaved? That's how you define your life. The younger brother... His statement isn't much different. He's created this speech, this speech that says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants, your slaves. Are you kidding? Both brothers view themselves that way? And they're not even that way because the hired servants of the household are having a great time. They're all part of the party. They're probably playing the music and dancing. Can't figure out why the brothers aren't joining in. This is fabulous. There's a third character in here. You know there is. It's this amazing father. The father. Unlike what either brother fully understands. The father, arms wide out. The father, ready to embrace. The father, ready to hold. The father, longing for reunion. Amazing love. There are some who think that the love will be coercive will be manipulative, will be the kind of love that twists arms, that forces responses, that makes people respond in particular ways. Not this love. Not this grace. True love, unconditional love, doesn't require anything of the other. It's offered, and your response can be rejection, or it can be to respond in love. But love doesn't change. It predates rebellion. It goes before any kind of comparison notion. Love just keeps loving. For the younger brother, there is this sense, I, I'm convinced, this sense that the places in his life feel darker and darker and darker. And I can just hear the younger brother in me because though I relate so well to the older, the truth of the matter is 
I've got all kinds of younger brother in me. <laughs> and the other younger brother's ears have heard often, be careful, there's a slippery slope with some of the decisions you make. You give darkness or evil just a little glimmer, a chance, and it'll start filling up the whole place. It breaks through all of those cracks. I, I think it may be just the opposite. I think it's grace that breaks through the cracks. I think the younger brother knows how much darkness there is. If, if, I'm, if I'm standing in a room full of light and there is a cracked door open and it's dark on the other side, it's not like darkness starts creeping in. It, it's not like the darkness in the closet, if the closet is open just a little bit, all of a sudden starts filling up the room. But if I'm in a dark room, and there is a little opening into the room next door, a crack in the wall, a, something that allows me to see outside, the light starts breaking into the darkness. It starts seeping in. I go and it's like a magnet. It draws me to that place to look through to see what's on the other side. And, and I end up thinking, I, I want to be in that room. I want to be there. It's grace that works its way through the cracks and starts planting a taste in my mouth that makes me long for something that I haven't found anyplace else. It's a father who says to me, don't you know all I have is yours? All I have is yours. There's an amazing calling on the Father's part. This phrase, the phrase that's stated from the Father to the Son, stated to a Son who seems unaware of all that's at his access. And let me just pause for a moment to say, I know that this storyline is so male-dominated. Two brothers, a father, it's like testosterone all over this storyline. But in the storyline of the one who reaches out the arms, there are so many beautiful maternal characteristics. The gathering together, the leaping off of the porch, the one who stretches out in love and throws food on the table, the one who nurtures and cares and wants to draw the sons close in. I, I confess, this is just me saying this, but I'm convinced that if Jesus spoke this parable into a matriarchal society instead of the one into which he spoke in that point in time and in that place in the Middle East, he very likely would have made it a story of two daughters, the older daughter and the younger daughter. So I'm just saying, find yourself someplace in this story, wherever it is, and understand God's beckoning to you. But God speaks these words, all I have is yours. And if we fully understood love, 
If we got that it's not based on comparisons or earning or getting my identity right based on what I do and what I can accomplish and consume and find, there might come a time where we say back to God, and all I have is yours. If I could figure out how to utter those words, I think I would begin to finally come to some resolution of the elder side of me and the younger side of me. The masculine parts of who I am, the feminine parts of who I am, the hero side of me, the adversary side of me, the parts of me that seem constantly at war and I can't ever find peace. But that's exactly what God is offering, is peace. That's where love leads. That's what grace does. It starts with forgiveness. But it crescendos in this place where I fully surrender. Where I say, okay, God, all I have is yours now. Because I'm finally beginning to catch the glimpse that all you have is mine. And once I embrace that, there's no shortage of what you're offering me. A father's beckoning call, God's beckoning call. A call to wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in the storyline. A call to surrender. To find your true home. Because the home that you've projected your own stuff onto, at least that's what I do all the time, is not the home that God has prepared for you and for me. And all the gods that I have made, that I have rejected, it's probably a good thing that I've rejected them. Because most of those characteristics are characteristics of my own making. So easy for me to live in idolatry, where I worship something that's not God at all. Because your creator, God, longs to love you, holds you close, jumps off the porch to embrace you, longs that you might come to the conclusion that you are truly in search of your true home, your true self your true love. The longing to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to see and be seen, to hear and be heard. God offers that without reservation. Will you and I get to the place where we let go of the mythology that God is hiding 
trying to keep us from hiding him, finding him. When we let go of the mythology that somehow God's love is dependent on you and me. God isn't even waiting on my repentance to love me or you. May we find our way home, our true home, our true identity, our true first love. God in heaven, This morning, if someone here has not found themselves anywhere in this story, Lord, may they have found themselves in a song that was sung or a scripture that was read or a thought that passed through their mind. May they, dear Lord, hold on to something that your spirit has challenged them on and their true identity. Or maybe somewhere in this story, somebody has felt, oh, that's me. Oh, and that's me too. May we, Lord, let go of the comparison game. Let go of the consumeristic game. Let go of the winning and losing game. Let go of the searching in everyone else process and in everything else. But yet, Lord, you give us the freedom to do all of that. You keep loving. You keep offering grace. Oh, God, I pray that we have cracks in the veneer that we have put up. The thing that we have thought has protected us from anybody seeing the real me, the frightened me, the scared me, the arrogant me, the far country me. Oh, Lord, how embarrassing that would be if somehow they peeked through the veneer. But God, there are cracks in that veneer, cracks that make me frightened, but also cracks through which grace begins to seep. Grace that begins to give me identity, grace that begins to give me hope, grace that begins to rename me with a new name, your name, Fill us with your grace this morning, Lord. Before we sing our praises and our response, Lord, I, we're going to say together the prayer you taught your disciples so many centuries ago, and disciples have been praying ever since. Lord, may this be a homecoming prayer for us. Strange to start a new school year with homecoming being the first day. But that's what we want. This is maybe in part your prayer over us, Lord, but certainly our prayer. May it give us courage. May it give us hope. May it express our hearts. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want you to know one thing. 
there's a party going on. And all of us who are children tend to stand on the outside looking in and we can't figure out this thing called love. It's as if the hired servants get it better than we do. And yet it's our inheritance. Join in the music. Join in the dancing. Join in the celebration. Let go of the resentment and comparisons. This is a time to celebrate a 